Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Visible Voice Books in Tremont, Ohio. With a glass of wine or a cup of joe in hand, readers can explore a curated selection of new and secondhand books. And we're brought to you by Lit Youngstown, a literary community proud to support beginning and experienced writers who seek to hone their craft, foster understanding, and share and publish their creative work. Read, write, and tell your story at LitYoungstown.org. Who's your oldest friend? When it comes to this question, we often answer with the name of the person we've known the longest. My friend Steve and I have known each other for more than 40 years. Our moms led a local parenting group, so we were constantly dragged to picnics and barbecues where we fled the breastfeeding women and climbed on rocks and waded in creeks. As teenagers, we were always in the same math class, and we danced together in the show choir. When I published my first book, Steve drove across Los Angeles after work to be one of a small handful of people in the audience at my first reading. Even though we only see one another every few years, he's still one of my oldest friends. But we could also answer this question a different way. Who's your oldest friend? Steve's my age. We grew up together. A lot of us, I'm guessing, don't have many older friends. I might have counted my grandma Mary as a friend. She taught me to make homemade pasta and always laughed when my sister and I called to say we'd flummoxed the Italian Easter bread recipe again. Year after year, she would counsel us. You added too much flour. You didn't knead long enough. Were the eggs fresh? Grandma Mary possessed wisdom that we didn't, and I was always grateful when she shared it. But she was also family. I'm not sure if I can technically call her my friend. I'm in a book club now with a handful of older women. I inherited the spot when a friend of mine admitted she never read the books and sent me in her place. For a while, I barely spoke. Most of the women are at least a decade older than I am, and each and every one of them is so brilliant and accomplished. They've had long careers, led progressive causes, traveled extensively. Some are active retirees. It's such an honor to learn from them. And we recently read and loved a book by today's guest, Monica Wood, who wrote about the oldest person I've ever met in a novel. Ms. Ona Vitkus is a 104-year-old Lithuanian-American woman whose expressions and mannerisms found their way into my heart. She was like my best childhood friend, my grandmother, and a member of my book club all rolled into one. And I wanted to meet the writer who invented this spectacular character I came to love so well. Monica Wood is a novelist, memoirist, and playwright, the 2019 recipient of the Maine Humanities Council Carlson Prize for contributions to the public humanities, and a recipient of the Maine Writers and Publishers Alliance Distinguished Achievement Award. She's the author of four works of fiction, most recently, The One in a Million Boy, which won a Nautilus Award, and the 2017 Fiction Prize from the New England Society in the city of New York. She's also the author of Any Bitter Thing, Ernie's Ark, and My Only Story, a finalist for the Kate Chopin Award. Monica is also the author of When We Were the Kennedys, a memoir of her growing up in Mexico, Maine. She lives in Portland with her husband, Dan Abbott, and their cat, Susie. Monica Wood, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you. So other than Little Women, which I read and reread, I think every night between the ages of maybe like eight and 11, because I thought if I kept reading 
maybe this time Joe would accept <laughs> Teddy's proposal and the world would be right. Um, other than that book and maybe The Great Gatsby, which I just read every few years, I think I've read your novel, The One in a Million Boy, more times than any other book I've ever owned. Oh, oh my gosh. That makes me feel so good. Thank you, Anne-Marie. I do reread things, but I met your book just at a particular time and place in my life, and I got stuck in it in a good way. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just so grateful that you're out there and it's out there. Well, I'm grateful for readers like you, that is for sure. And I really understand that idea of a book coming to you at a certain time and place. There are books that I read when I was younger that I revisited, classics, I mean, that I revisited later that I thought, oh my goodness, how this is, I can't understand why I was so enthralled by this. And I always say too that a book doesn't live all by itself. It's where the reader and the writer meet and sometimes you just have to meet under the right street lamp or on the proper corner before the book can fully flower for the reader. Well, absolutely. I think we had the, we had good lighting. My hair looked good that day. I don't know what happened, but when I met your book, I was ready for it. But I, I'm jumping ahead, and I should let people meet you because not all of our readers will have had the great good fortune to read The One in a Million Boy or... We are the Kennedys or any of your other things. So why don't I just mm -hmm. ask you our opening question, which is always, will you tell us your story? Well, I've been a writer my whole life, but as a professional writer, I was a bit of a late bloomer. I didn't publish anything really of substance until I was about 40. That's when my first novel came out. Um, I'm from a little town in Maine called Mexico, Mexico, Maine. It's a mill town on the Androscoggin River at the heart of the... Androscoggin Valley, with a giant paper mill pumping at the heart of this valley. And we were a mill family. My father and my grandfather and my brother worked their whole lives at the mill. And um, I was one of five children, Irish Catholic family. And we had kind of a two-generation family. I had an older brother and sister, much older than I. And then there were the three little girls. And of the three little girls... I was the middle one, but I feel more like the older one of that group because my next older sister was Betty and she had developmental disabilities. She was a delightful, delightful human being. We lost her four years ago and miss her every day still. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. She was quite a, quite, quite a gal. And uh, so we were a very close family and my father died very suddenly when I was nine so my mother had these three little kids, and my sister Anne at the time was still living at home, but she was a teacher at the high school, and she would be my teacher when I got to high school. And without her, I don't know what our family would have done. She's one of those step-up people who just kind of held up the whole world for our family in the face of tragedy. And she also encouraged my writing. Um, she was the best English teacher I ever had, and I had a lot of really good ones. And I probably wasn't the best student she ever had, though. Uh, it's the only B I ever got in English. Um, so, yeah, that's a whole other story. But, um, but yeah, so it was, a, you know, a kind of working class, mill family, blue-collar Democrat, um, you know, pretty typical family of that era and that town. Uh, and I was just always writing. I wrote little stories and poems and songs and things. And um, I 
before I became a writer, I was a high school guidance counselor for eight years, which was a wonderful job, but very draining and uh, didn't have a lot of energy left over at the end of the day to do any writing, which I was always doing since I was four years old, I was writing. Um, and so I took a big chance. I was married by then. I was about 33, I think, and decided to leave my day job. And luckily, I had a wonderful partner who was supportive of that. And I did. And I never looked back. I've been freelancing ever since. We lived the dream. That's yeah. what we all want to do is leave our day jobs and mm -hmm. write for a living yeah. and have books in the trunks of our cars mm -hmm. and just drive around. You yeah. did it. I, well, with, you know, with help, I couldn't have done it alone. I, I couldn't have been a, become a writer alone. I needed my sister and wonderful teachers and, of course, beautiful books to read. And I definitely could never have left that job without a husband who really supported what I was doing. So, you know, eventually it became a living, but it took a long time for that to happen. Why'd your sister give you a B? Because <laughs> she was that the right grade? Did she, it or was, was it more like she didn't want to be seen as giving you an A? Or no, did you no, write no, a, no, no. She a knew, crummy paragraph? She knew that I faked my way through Wuthering Heights and Great Expectations. I never read <gasps> either book. What? And she Not knew Heathcliff? it. Not Catherine? You know, okay. Okay, Anne Marie, <laughs> there's another book. We were talking a little earlier, I think off air, about how books come to you at certain times in your life. And sometimes it's the right time and sometimes it isn't. And I remember thinking, I don't know what I was missing with Wuthering Heights. And I read it like maybe two or three years ago and thought, oh my, this is a horrendously horrible story about terrible people doing awful things. And somehow generations of teenage girls think Heathcliff is this, you know, smoke show. <laughs> But he, he killed her puppies. Do we not you remember skip over that? that part? We absolutely do not remember oh. that part. We just breeze by. Yeah, well, I you're totally right. I that, could that book not is crazy. do that. The man was <laughs> evil incarnate. So mm -hmm. I'm glad I didn't read it when I was in high school. It would have kept me up at night. <laughs> well, you're lucky that you only got a B if you skip both of those. Books. I know I did, but I, I read a lot of other stuff. So and I was a really good writer back then. So. Um, my papers were good. Well, I think you're you're a really good writer <laughs> really now. now <laughs> Thank <too>. you. <laughs> um, in an interview, I think it was a few years ago, I heard your body of work described as an exercise in empathy and mm. compassion. Do you think that's a fair assessment of the, the work yes, you do? Yes, I do. But I, I also think empathy and compassion are two very different things. Um, empathy is merely the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. It doesn't necessarily follow that you'll feel compassion for that person, but you, but you, but being a writer means you can imagine yourself as anyone, as a serial killer, as a cloistered nun, as a 10 year old boy with issues. <laughs> um, so, so I kind of make a, a difference between empathy and compassion. I think I do have a lot of compassion. I think there's a lot of, of heart in my work because that's what I value in my life. But empathy is something else. I think of it more as a, it's a writerly tool. And compassion is, I, I think, just the spirit with which you approach the work. Now, that makes sense. I feel like I, I felt both of those things with the one in a million boy. I mean, like many folks, at the start of the, of the pandemic, I struggled to take in information. Right. I'm a lifelong reader. I've got books in every room of my house. 
But in 2020, anyway, it was hard for me to let new stories in. And, you know, so at, at first I reached for familiar stories that I knew, Pride and Prejudice, the English Patient, Far Off, love stories that, you know, my heart knew by heart. But I also, you know, my dad was sick at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, he was dying of brain cancer while the whole world was sort of closing down. Oh, my gosh. And I know that part of the reason that your book came and sat with me for so long is I was yearning for stories to help me make sense of loss, right? In the, in the opening pages, I'm not giving anything away here, we learn that an 11-year-old child has passed away. We never learn his name. He's just, he's the boy, but of course, for us, for readers, he's simultaneously alive throughout the novel because much of it consists of these gorgeous flashbacks, live scenes between the boy and his 104-year-old Lithuanian-American friend, Ona Vitkus. I think for me, that's why I kept coming back to the story because it was like a handbook for how to survive grief. How do we grieve the people we love? We keep them alive in the stories we tell, in the moments we remember. I, I'm going to start fawning here a little bit, but again, I just, one of my favorite things was to meet these characters I never knew who helped me make sense of something that I'd never experienced. Um, and I don't know, how did you find these characters? Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, thank you for that. That's just very beautifully expressed, and that is what I was trying to to get to. I, I really want people to enter my stories and feel as if they are accompanying people they would never have met in their own life, but they're accompanying somebody else through a story that feels very, very real to them. I like my characters to feel multidimensional and complicated and real. Uh, the, it's funny, the only thing, Anne-Marie, that I had at the beginning of this, this is very typical of me, I started the book with nothing but an image of a house. I knew just where it was. It's not very far from where I live in Portland, Maine. Um, and I knew there was an old person living in the house. I didn't know if it was a male or a female. And all I had was an image of a bereaved person walking up the steps and knocking on the door. That is all I had. I didn't know who the bereaved person was, nothing. And I just set pen to paper. And the second it, it, I realized I just started writing and the person was a male. And that was Quinn, the boy's father, who's a, a musician. He's a guitar player. I knew that. And he opens the door and it's a little old lady. And I didn't realize how old she was until she started talking. And I realized she was 104 years old. And I also realized that Quinn was the father of this child and was there not really of his own free will. He's there to complete his son's weekly Boy Scout troop um, good deed for this old lady helping her with her chores. And the, his ex-wife, twice ex-wife, who's the boy's grieving mother, you find out later, has guilted him into going and completing the boy's tasks for the, the old lady. But he cannot bring himself to tell the woman that the boy has died. And she finds out on her own and is very angry with him when she does find out. Because as she says, I thought he was one of those boys who'd never finish anything, and he wasn't. And he, she's telling this poor man, and you made me think he was one of those, besmirching his reputation in this house. She was, she was sticking up for him, and I think that's maybe the first 
place in the book where Quinn realizes the impact this child, who's a very odd little boy that he never really understood, a little bit afraid of him, really, because he was so quirky and unusual. Uh, and But he realizes, you know, too late for him, but not too late for him to learn how to care for others, as we'll, we find later on in the book. But he, he discovers the impact his child had on other people. And that's the one of the first times that happens. I am overwhelmed thinking, I actually cried a little bit thinking of you starting only with this house where an older person lived and someone, someone who's broken is walking to the door. Like I actually, I feel, <laughs> I feel like I've been on that porch. I feel like I've knocked on that door. I feel like I've been the broken person who Ona has said, come in, I will regale you. How amazing that that's the origin point. So then how are these characters born? Because I feel like um, Louise Grady, the oh. one-woman weather system, could be her own book, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> even even Belle, the twice ex-wife, um, chopping the heads off of tulips because she can't, she can't bear the thought of these flowers. Um, she could be her own story. Uh, Quinn, as you mentioned, um, trying to learn to be a father— uh, after his son has passed away and and also standing in for the lead guitarist in a Christian rock band, <laughs> he could be his own story. How did they all find that house? Are, are, how did you weave them together? Where did they come from? Oh, it is so hard to talk about process, Anne-Marie, because the way I write is so... Um, my process is something that sets my other writer friends hair on fire because what I do some some people do work this way but not not a lot what I do is I write about 50 pages and then throw them away and start all over again and then I write about <laughs> 75 pages and throw those away and start all over again because what I'm doing is just finding my way into the story you know because it, you know you start on page 1 and all you know is this this there's a woman and a man in a kitchen talking and by page 50 I'm getting an idea of who they are, who they were, what they want, what their real problem is, how they're going to interact. But what happens earlier is no longer relevant because I didn't know who they were then. So page five is like, why even hang on to page five? It's gone. So the whole thing goes away. And then by the time I get to the third round, I've I've got it enough to keep going, but I, I still do, you know, constant, I'm like a border collie herding sheep. You know, I go up to the front and then back to the back and up to the front and back to the back um, and, and just revising very heavily as I go. All right. So we learn early on that one of the shared projects between Ona and the boy is a quest to break a world record. It occurs to the boy that Ona, at age 104, could in fact be the oldest living person. And he is quite enamored of world records, right? He's tried yes, he to is. spin a nickel and he's tried to stack cards and he's interested in, in records and, and being remembered, right? Um, spoiler alert, she's not the oldest person. At 104, there are others. But the two of them set out to determine a record they might be able to to break. Were you, I'm, 
how did this thread come in? Was it 50 pages in, 100? Where did this come from? I can't remember where that came from, but I, I think probably what I did is I started researching very old people and realized that Ona, honestly, in the grand scheme of things, is a spring chicken still, because the oldest person ever to live was 122 years old. Her name was Madame Calmont from France, and she <laughs> she figures very heavily in the story and becomes a kind of rival to Ona, even though she's long dead. Um, and, the, and then I started looking at, um, you know, what they're called supercentenarians, as people over 110 years old. And... Some of them are still mowing their own lawns. I mean, it's it's just kind of amazing. And there's this outfit called uh, Genealogy Research something or other online, and they keep constant track of the oldest people in the world. Uh, and the only sad thing about it is, you know, I became quite attached to some of these people. And, of course, they all died because... You know, they were 116, 114, 112, 100. And in fact, the oldest woman in the world just died. She was 119 years old, a Japanese woman. And then the one who took her place is 117. She's also Japanese, which is not unusual. And um, both of them were doing just fine and dandy until, you know, old age finally took over. And at the time that I was writing, the book. I was a visiting writer at Colby College for a year. And I live in Portland, Maine. Colby College is in Waterville, Maine. It's about an hour and a half drive from my house. And I hate driving. So I thought I really should find some place to stay up there for, you know, three days a week or so, so I can, you know, fully participate on campus activities and all that jazz. So I found a little apartment above this rambling old house in the town, next town over from Waterville. And the landlady's name was Mary Berry. And she was a tiny little 87-year-old. And we became fast friends because I had to walk through her house to get up to my little apartment. And so she would have tea ready for me when I came in. She was a extremely vibrant person. She was connected to her church and she was the designated driver for all her little old lady friends. She would take them to the nursing home and to church and to the supermarket. And she was sort of part owner of the cat across the street named Tic Tac because <laughs> uh, she loved cats, but she felt she would outlive a cat. So she didn't want to have a cat. So she, this guy just lounged around her house eating you know, the cat version of bonbons all day. And then he'd leave at night and go to his real home, supposedly. So we became very, very good friends. Uh, But I got, you know, a few little things from Ona's life straight from Mary. The layers upon layers of story in here, I'm just delighted by everyone. Oh, Um, gosh, thank you. Just so much fun. We also get um, a bunch of lines that are... I don't know. I wouldn't call them admonishments so much, but the way you capture Ona, were were any of these just stolen lines when she says, people don't live in capital letters. People don't write their own endings. No one will love you more than they love themselves. I don't know that this is, I'm mixing up Quinn and, and Ona in these, but these pronouncements and lines that 
that did, are they just gifts from the heavens? Are they written 75 lines in? Do you remember stealing anything from your muses? She says, for crumb's sake. That's her little <laughs> thing. Oh, for crumb's sake. I love it. And I did, I did lift that directly from my friend Mary Jane, who talks like she's 105, uh, and she's not. Yeah, so there were a few little things like that that I'll take. A lot of expressions from my own mother. You know, she was an old-fashioned gal. Some of them just, they just arrive. You know, you, you start writing and you honestly don't know what's coming. It's very exciting. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. You also don't always write the ending that you thought you were going to. You know, I, I would imagine that that ending comes as a gift at some point, but that it may or may not be the bow you tie around at the end of a story. Yeah, the ending for this one, I, it, it goes to a place you're not expecting. Let me put it that way. And I really, I love that last chapter so much because I wasn't intending to to go to that place. And I, I thought I was finished with the book and realized that there was an unwritten ending that people needed to experience, not to read, but to experience. And that was, even though it's, you know, it's very fraught and emotional, I loved writing it. it was, I was so happy writing that last chapter. And then you turn the page and there's a little something for the, for the reader <laughs> for making that journey. There's one more little thing. <laughs> People who are listening, you really do just need to read this book. <laughs> oh, thank I'm you, yapping Lynn about Rain. the one in a million boys, though it's the only thing you've ever written, but you've also, <laughs> I'm doing your career a disservice, right? You've written a memoir, you've written short stories, I've, I've read essays of yours, and you're also recently a playwright. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I think um I think I read that Papermaker was your first play mm-hmm. and a resounding success followed very closely by The Half Light and you possibly have another one in I the do. works. I Tell have me about the playwriting. One. The playwriting is a utter delight, uh, especially when you you've spent, you know, decades typing alone in a room, you're suddenly in a room with a bunch of actors and a director, and this is, you know, this is, you have to write the script first, of course, but what happens in the theater world, and I know so little about the theater world, it was sort of interesting to be a neophyte again in a, in an area that I, it's writing, you know, writing is writing, but the business of it was foreign, completely foreign to me. I'm a huge theater enthusiast. I go to theater all the time. I, I love plays, all kinds of plays. Um, but when you are a playwright and a theater agrees to do your play, 
the first time, so the debut production of your play, you are in the process. So you're rewriting it with the actors. You are... So I was in the rehearsal room. This was at Portland Stage, which is a very well-regarded regional theater. And um, I was in the room with the actors and the director with my laptop and my printer. And I would literally be printing new pages as they were rehearsing their scenes. It was the most dynamic and collaborative and exciting experience of my professional life. I just loved it. And the actors were so good. Oh, and I got to go on a casting trip to New York. And I mean, it was all very new and exciting. And everything about it, after I did the, the original script, everything about it was teamwork. You know, it wasn't just me. It was all these other beautiful souls rowing the boat with me, going to the same place on the shore, which was a place that would make this the best play it could possibly be. We all had that same goal. And it was a truly magical experience. And the half flight was the same thing. You know, the same, another beautiful cast, another trip to New York. Um, audiences that... The other thing about playwriting is... I'll just admit it. I went to every single play, every single show, every single one. Like, like <laughs> you know, were there more than like two? I'd, I'd never been there. There were thirty something, <laughs> yes. and I was at every single one of them. And oh. I would run into people afterwards, and they go, "Oh, I was so excited that you know you happen to be at the play that I saw." You know, I said, "Oh, yes. Well, I was at all of them, so it really the odds were excellent that you would see me there." Um, sometimes I'd go up in the booth in the, you know, the tech booth and watch from there. And sometimes I'd be in the audience, but I saw every single show because I thought, you know, I may never see this play again. That's the thing. It's not, you don't put it, even if you did have it in a book form, plays are not meant to be read. They're meant to be seen and heard. And there's just this magic of, it's so different from a book. You don't get to see people reacting in real time to what you've written. And in a play, you know, you've got a whole theater cracking up with laughter over some line that you wrote. It is really exciting and gratifying. So I absolutely adore playwriting. This is number three now. It's called Saint Dad. Uh, And it's in the, kind of in the workshop staging now. So the other terrifying and horrible thing about the playwriting process, which is very different from novel writing is the public gets to see your drafts because there's no other way to know what's working oh, and what isn't terrifying. horrible. I said, you know, I that's would like when you bring the pages to a workshop, you're like, I know these aren't ready yet. Yeah. And then you just give them to the world. Oh, it's, <gasps> it's awful. Wow. Um, so you have an audience and you have actors, you know, staged reading of the work and it's, there's a director. I'm going to have one coming up next month for the new one. Uh, although I'm not as scared this time. I've been through it twice, so I, my skin's a little thicker. But I really, I, I told somebody once, I would rather walk down Congress Street in my underwear <laughs> than have, than do this. It, it's so, uh, you know, having everybody see your drafts, it's just, it's <laughs> horrifying. Or but also it, it really, must be done. really vulnerable. And like you said about, You've written it. You might have read a set, written a sentence where it has the word good, and someone else is like, "I think bedazzled works better here." And then 
that sentence is born. So I don't know. There there might be something you could do both. You could you could go to it in your underwear. Oh yeah. Well, I can. <laughs> I'll do that. I should. They'll be so distracted by the playwright in her underwear that they won't notice the mistakes. I, I don't know. Um, I should confess that I have held a little bit of a grudge against the state of Maine since, as a thirteen-year-old, I was dragged there to visit family. While my then oh. best friend got to go to Myrtle Beach, and she got a boyfriend and a bikini, and I just had to like eat popovers in the fog, which now sounds wonderful to me. <laughs> but as a thirteen-year-old, I just I I've been mad about it for a long time. But if I knew I was coming to see a play of yours, I think I could <laughs> one just see this author's writing that I love, and also make peace with an entire state, and also my yeah. my moody teenage self. So when and where can we see this play? Uh, first of all, Anne-Marie, you could have found a boyfriend in Maine. You just didn't look hard enough. It was so cold. I brought a There are plenty of boys in Maine. <laughs> um, this new play, honestly, I don't know when it will, if, if, or when it will debut. But uh, if it debuts, it probably will be Portland stage. Uh, that's kind of my artistic home at this point. Um Papermaker has been performed all kinds of places, but the original production remains absolutely my favorite. That's tremendous. Well, I'm going to, I will jump online and we'll make sure to link to them so that people can follow that theater. And so we can, um, yeah, great, skulk around and try to find, um, find you there. That's so great. Um, okay, so I know what's next, and I've asked you about these things. All right, so I'm going to— Well, I have oh, a novel coming up. I have right, a new novel right. coming up. Yeah, I have a novel coming out uh, from Mariner Books in May of 23, so that's a year from now. And Mariner Books is—well, you don't need to know all this, but it sounds like it's a new publisher, but it's actually my old publisher was sold to HarperCollins— blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it's coming out under Mariner Books. And I have a a new editor, very young editor. She's 25 years old. And I thought, oh, (laughs) this could be interesting. Uh, And we had just a wonderful editorial relationship. She's a, I think she's an old soul, you know, just very insightful, very wise, and, and did what good editors do, which is she didn't try to bend the book to her will. She tried to bend the book to its own will, to see what the book wanted to be. And that's how we proceeded. And it's, it's, that is not easy to do. Um, especially as a younger editor working with a older established writer but she was really great anyway it's called meanwhile and there are three main characters and the one the one whose story it really is is violet and her part of the book is in the first person the other two are in third person and it's basically it's called Meanwhile, and so Violet, the narrator, is 22 years old, and she is just getting out of prison for um, vehicular manslaughter. It was a drunk driving accident in which she killed a kindergarten teacher. And while she's in prison, she goes to the prison book club every Friday without fail, which is run by a volunteer lady named Harriet, who's a retired English teacher. And when Violet gets out, which is very early in the book, she gets out and she's dumped in Portland, Maine, where she knows nobody. 
and she beelines it to a bookstore because she wants to find the book they were reading and she didn't finish <laughs> when they were in the book. And Harriet is in the bookstore, which she's in a lot, buying the next round of books for the next book they're going to read. And she sees Violet and decides to take her under her wing. And in the meantime, there is a man named Frank Daigle. He's the third character in the book. He's a retired machinist. He is working now as the store handyman. He has a crush on Harriet and doesn't quite know how to go about it. And he is the widower of the woman that Violet killed in the accident. So it's about how, you know, it's very similar to my other books in the sense of disparate people forming a family bond. So I, I really describe my work as a body of work it's about people making family out of broken parts yeah found family and that's what this is about yeah found families i've lived in a lot of places where my family wasn't and so the the misfit toys that you gather and the and the people that you find and discover um you there is something gorgeous about the folks who complete you when you're you've got no family around also i've i've taught in um well, in I've I've taught incarcerated folks and and worked in juvenile justice centers, and one of my biggest takeaways was always how um, an instant, you know, the, you're describing a, someone who was drunk who killed someone. I have talked in the show before about just like stupid choices I made that you somehow mm. got out of okay, right? Because you were lucky. You were yeah. lucky, and that was my biggest takeaway was when I was writing with these men and women who were incarcerated. All I could think was, oh, my God, that is, uh, that is the worst luck I've ever heard, that, that, that I was loved through a moment that I went left and they were loved or not loved through a moment and they went right and their entire lives changed. And so um, I don't think we tell yeah. enough stories probably about folks who've been in and out of our um, yeah. Prison industrial complexes. The line is much thinner than we think between us and them. Much, much thinner. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, well, we will be on the lookout for that. And I hope that you'll come back and chat with us about it. All right. We always end with just some um, last, like, little multiple choice questions. So you just pick one. Okay. Oh, goody. All right. All right. Um, Dogs or cats? Oh, cats. I thought that's so much. easy. Yeah. <laughs> I love all when... writers pick cats. Don't all your writers pick cats? <laughs> You'd be surprised. I love when Ona was talking about um, how she could have gone through another cat and a half. Oh, <laughs> she, she had room in her heart for, like you're saying, she, she had a room for another cat and a half. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, coffee or tea? Coffee. Mountains or beach? Mountains. Dreamer or striver? Oh. That's from the book. Dreamer or striver? Uh, you know, I am a striver. What can I say? I really, Me I am too. a striver. I want to be a dreamer, but I'm a yeah, striver no. too. Yeah, but I, you know, strivers make the world go around, Anne-Marie. You know, we're the ones who keep the dreamers, you know, they can float off in their clouds. They need us badly. Mm-hmm. Shonda Rhimes has a good uh, graduation speech, I think, that she gave at Dartmouth at this point many years ago, probably. Time's gone screwy, but it's something about like, you know, doers are busy doing while the dreamers are dreaming. So I, I, I took I took some um, some good faith in that. Yeah. <laughs> um, early bird or night owl? Night owl. And if you weren't working as a writer, what would you be? 
I would be either, I'd be a performer of some kind, probably. I would probably have been a singer. Um, but the other thing, there were two other things. One is a hairdresser that has always appealed to me greatly. And the other is like the ornithologist lady who goes on the islands to band all the birds. That would, I would love that job. Oh my gosh, a singing hairdresser who also does birds there or a go. singing bird lady who also does hair. <laughs> yeah. I assumed that you were a bird person because of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's your favorite bird? My favorite bird, bird, honestly, it's not any of the exotics. It's just the plain old black-capped chickadee because they never leave us. They're here all year round when all the other birds fly to their little summer vacations and the chickadee sticks around. And they're very t- – I've tamed them by hand. They, you know, they, they're just very friendly, confiding birds. That's excellent. Uh, um, are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the Band-Aids are? Oh, my goodness. I have a friend who did a book a few years ago uh, called Quirk, and it's about brain chemistry. And so she had all of her friends be guinea pigs, and we took this long, long personality test, which was about the five um, tenets of of, of a human personality. So, you know, are you this or that? Are you this or that? And on risk-taking... There were two. One is emotional risk-taking and one was physical risk-taking, and it was zero, zero to 100. And on physical risk-taking, Anne-Marie, I got a zero. Oh, no. And on emotional <laughs> risk-taking, I got 100. Wow. Isn't that hilarious? Well, that actually makes sense for the, the writing life. I think it does. Right? You've got to do yeah. the emotional work. You can't be... Jump! You can't be bungee jumping. No, I am. Today. You couldn't pay me enough. I am a. Re- I am a Freddy cat. Yeah, terrible Freddy cat. All right. Uh, what do you love about where you live? Oh my goodness, Portland, Maine is a beautiful city. I've been here for my whole adult life. It's changed a lot. It's now like the hippest city in America. Everybody wants to come, um, except in the dead of winter. But it's you know it's right on the coast. My husband has a boat, so we go out on Casco Bay, and you know motor around and watch birds and it's a it has an incredibly vibrant art and theater scene and Maine itself has an unbelievable tribe of writers there are so many of us here and writers who come to live here from elsewhere which they do more and more and more they can't get over how nice we are they just say you're so nice like I don't know where they come from, but apparently writers are always stabbing each other in the back, but not here. That does not happen. Um, it's a it's a marvelous place. Well, I was to be thinking that you and Elizabeth Strout were the only two people I knew of who had written such wholly rich older characters, right? Olive Kittredge and Ona Vitkus, right? Uh, yeah. It's one of my favorite books. I know Liz too, of course, because she's Maine-based, yeah. Um, what's mm-hmm. your favorite ice cream flavor? Oh, that varies greatly. Right now it's mint chocolate chip, um, but I'm also a sucker for chocolate with any kind of cherry or orange or strawberry, you know, some... Those are both yeah. lovely. All lovely. And the last one, if we were to take a picture of you really happy... And doing something you love, what would we see? I would be giving a grape to my neighbor chicken who comes over every day and knocks on my door. <laughs> That's what I would be doing. That that ridiculous chicken got me through COVID without having Does a breakdown. Does the chicken have a name? Yes. Her name is Eddie. Eddie the chicken. She's a hen. 
And um, she's got a long story. She has nine lives. She got grabbed by a coyote one day, and she ended up the winner. She had no tail, but she came out of it just fine and dandy. She's the quite a gal. Ed Hen. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what you would see me doing right now is giving Eddie green a Green or red grape? Oh, she likes green. Sure. Prefers them. Okay. Yeah. Just want to make sure. For a chicken, <laughs> she's rather fussy. That's excellent. Well, yeah. thank you, Monica Wood, for coming on the show today. Thank you for reminding us that the story of our life doesn't necessarily start at the beginning, that we may, in fact, live more than one life. And um, for reminding us that most folks we know are probably also like the boy in the story made of a little magic Mm. and to be on the lookout for that folks our guest today has been monica wood she is the author of novels short stories plays a memoir we will link to as much as we can find out there um on our show notes page please do yourself a favor just go buy say 10 copies of this book (laughs) from an independent bookstore near you and give it to everyone you know you will not be sorry Um, We thank you for listening. Be good to yourselves. Be good to one another. And we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrub. And audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.